Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have John Droz. Uh, he's a physicist and an environmental advocate. Uh, we're going to talk about um, his various research. He has a website uh, called wiseenergy.org. He also puts out a newsletter, uh, covers many topics, environmental topics, uh, etc. And uh, his perspectives are very different from probably a lot of what you might see in the media. So I'm glad to speak to him. So, John, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, tell me about your, uh, a little bit about your history. You says you're a physicist and environmental advocate. Like, what's, what have you been working on, you know, the past, I, know, I mean, in your whole career? Like, where did you, how did you get to this point? What's your, some of your history? Well, I'm a scientist, physicist specifically, and, um, Probably one of the more pertinent things here is that I retired from my uh, management position in General Electric when I was 34. So I'm now 74, so I haven't worked, technically worked, for 40 years. So most people say, well, how the heck did that happen? So if you want, I can explain how that happened, but sort of yeah, set very young, It's very young to, to retire. What? Uh, how are you able to do that financially so young? Okay, well, the brief version is that I worked at GE Aerospace Electronics in uh, central New York, and uh, I uh, was always sort of a frugal person. So GE had a, an employee store that was quite interesting that you could go in and buy any GE product at a substantial discount. So I went in there quite a bit. And the guy who was running the store, his name was uh, George Epsenberger. I remember it. 50 years or so later. And so because I went in so often, he and I just sort of started chatting, you know, socially, blah, blah, blah. So after a year or so, he started telling me that he was planning on retiring, which is fine. And so he started then telling me every time I went in a different phase, uh, you know, he bought an RV, he was going to go down to Florida to visit his daughter and his grandchildren, blah, blah, blah. So every time I came in, he showed me pictures, stuff like this. So I sort of got invested in that and was uh, interested in it, excited for him. So the day came and he did retire. But the thing that was the impression on me was about uh, two weeks later, I saw in the newspaper that he died. Uh, so to me, that made a big impression on me. Uh, it was one of the yeah. things I uh, remember to this day because... Uh, effectively, what this guy had—he uh, was—he was his whole working life was focused towards uh, doing some things he wanted to do, and he didn't have a week <laughs> to do what he really wanted to do. So I said to myself, "That is not going to happen to me." Period. So that was one of the driving things for me. George's story here to say I, even though I enjoyed the job at GE, it was a fascinating job. Uh, but there's a lot of other things I was interested in doing. So I started right then, this is my early 20s, to uh, come up with a plan for early retirement. That's what yeah, started yeah. all. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah, tell me about that. I, well, one, one brief anecdote. Um, when I was uh, you know, in my early 20s, I worked at Motorola and Intel. And I remember I ran across this guy. And his goal was to save a million bucks at the time because he figured – the thing that he would probably need later on is maybe a heart replacement. So he thought if he saved a million dollars, he could afford, a, you know, the best care and to get a new heart or a heart transplant. So I said, okay, that's, that's an interesting goal. But uh, go ahead. What, what was your financial plan to retire early? My plan was to uh, attain the level of being financially independent. So I did not have a dollar amount specifically. I just said, I want to achieve financial independence. So once I have financial independence on my own, well, then I don't need to work for somebody else. So that was the, that was the goal. And I decided, I had a specific goal, and that was to be financially independent by the time I was 40. So as I said, I was like 22 or three at that point. So I started uh, looking into things for investing. I figured investing was the way to do it. So I started investing in the stock market. 
Uh, this is before I was married. And I got a broker, Beige was the guy. And, uh, you know, I didn't know that much about the stock market. I knew some, but not a lot. So I went by this guy's advice. So he would call me up and say, you know, buy uh, XYZ something. And, and I bought it. And uh, over a period of time, the next uh, year or so, I did really well. For instance, one of the stocks I was in, I still remember, was uh, Lovett's Furniture. Uh, this is a recommendation of his. Well, I bought it at 50, and within uh, six months, it went to 200. <laughs> well, it was the largest gainer in the New York Stock Exchange that year. Oh. Uh, so and I was in it. I didn't stay till 200, but I made a substantial profit. But uh, you used to say you, you loved it at Levitt's on the commercials. Uh, so uh, things are going fairly well in this, uh, this, this relationship I had with this guy until one day, he just, you know, we chatted and he sort of uh, probably said something he shouldn't have said. And that was, he said, you know, John, you're the luckiest client I have. So I started thinking about that afterwards. I said, luckiest client. Uh, it, it seemed to me what he was saying was that he was actually surprised that his recommendations for me were working out so well. Ooh. Well, that, that's what I inferred here because all I was doing was following his advice. So what, what was the luck part? <laughs> if, if, he's, if he's telling me that these are good investments and I invest in them and they turn out to be good investments, where's the luck part? Why is he saying that's lucky? So it, this is maybe being part of the Genius Network that I, I'm reading things into things that most people probably don't pay attention to. So I, uh, I deduced here that... He was just giving me random things here, and yes, they were working out. But he was he was surprised that they were working out. <laughs> so the fact that he's surprised, this is a guy who does this for a living, uh, says I ought to be a little more careful here. So I stopped investing in the stock market uh, shortly after that because of that reason, because I didn't want to have my retirement at forty to be uh, based on some some crapshoot. Uh, right. So I considered a variety of other things, and I decided on investing in real estate. But uh, again, me different from most people. Uh, most people would go into it and just start doing something. Well, I said, no, I'm going to learn from what other people have learned here. So I went down to Walden Books. That tells you my age here. They still had a Walden Books in our city. And I bought literally every book they had on real estate investing. And over the next year, I read probably 50 books. Well, how many people wow. have read 50 books on anything, right? <laughs> but but to me, this was, uh, you know, this is the, my life's plan. If this didn't work out, well, this is a big deal. So I was committed to this. So my perspective was every book was a story by some guy who had done investing. And uh, if I could learn what they learned, mistakes and successes, uh, with a couple of hours of time and 20 bucks, of, for buying a book, oh my God, how much is that worth? It'd be worth thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, so anyway, well, I mean, it's just, again, how many people do that? Uh, this is the difference maybe between somebody who's a little more intellectually aware than others. So after doing this study, this research, I then started buying real estate. And uh, because it worked out so well, because I you know, I worked at it. They didn't, nothing fell in my lap. Uh, then I was able to retire by the time I was 34. As I said, my goal yeah, was 40. Amazing. 40 was my goal. I started like 22 or three. So within about 10 years, I had achieved the level of financial independence. So I can give you one, uh, one quick, possibly inspiring story. There's a young guy uh, named Scott Young, and he just, you know, he had a one kind of degree and he wanted to get a second degree but he decided to do it in an unorthodox way. So he, he got all the coursework from MIT online and he got all the books and did all the homeworks and tests and everything. But he got through uh, like a computer science degree instead of four years, you know, bachelor's, he did it in one. He studied like crazy and, and got it all done. And it cost him about $2,000 worth of material instead of $200,000 from MIT. So it was a big story in the news, but it, it shows the power of, uh, you know, concentrated learning and focus like you did. Yep. I, I think uh, uh, that there's a lot of uh, 
You know, people talk about people being smart. Uh, I think uh, probably even more important than people being uh, intelligent is people paying attention. Uh, my view is, I'm a senior citizen now of 74, that there's a lot of opportunities that cross paths with everybody. But most people are not even either paying attention to them or they just choose not to take advantage of them. One little tiny story. Uh, when I was in high school, I was uh, considered a catch. I was a better looking guy than I am now. I had full head of hair, all that kind of stuff. And so I remember I was invited to, uh, I think it was a junior prom by this girl. Uh, I didn't hardly know this girl. I mean, I knew her somewhat. I'd never dated her. So she invited me to her prom. I said, sure. So I went and she had uh, another couple that she paired us up with us. So the four, I didn't know either of them. And so the four of us went. So before we went uh, to the actual dance, we went to uh, this other girl's, her friend's house. And her mom and dad were there and blah, blah, blah. And they were all ooh and ahhing how we nicely looked. And they wanted to take pictures and all this kind of other stuff. Again, I'm remembering all this here from, this is a long time ago. But I remember it very clearly. So the thing that made the impression on me here that I picked out of this whole day this was that as we were posing for these pictures, blah, 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 her mother was standing there and she just blurted out, uh, not, not, not really loudly, but just sort of said it to herself, if I only knew then what I know now. <laughs> she just said that one sentence. Now, I'm sure these other people didn't even pay attention to that or didn't even know it. But I'm telling you, that sentence hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, oh, my God, this woman is looking at, you know, us as being her past and saying her life uh, didn't turn out any way she wanted to. I said, I am not going to be in that position. So what did you do in that context? Well, this is part of some of these other things here. This was when I was in high school. So I'm saying, you know, this is before the story I said about uh, real estate and all this kind of other stuff. I, I took it upon myself to say I'm I'm uh, have no, nobody has complete control of their life here, but I'm in charge by and large of a lot of things that do happen. I need to be paying attention. I need to work at things that I'm committed about, and so on and so forth. So that 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 just that just that perspective is uh, different than most of the people I see, quite frankly. Yeah, but my point is that, that that this woman saying this sentence here. Here I'm telling you about this 50 some years later, you know, no one else there paid any attention to what that was said or what the implications of it was. But to me, it was a life changing moment, really. Well, let's uh, fast forward a little bit. How did you get a, uh, how did you become a physicist? And then how did you get interested in, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just call it climate change. But, okay. you know, how did those uh, two things happen? I, I was always interested in science. So when I was in high school, I did I did well in general. I didn't have well. I didn't even tell my averages. These days, everybody gets an A. So the whole idea has been devalued as to what a real mark is. But I got an A when an A really meant an A. Uh, but I always did well in sciences. I was interested. So when I went to college, uh, I picked a college based on a, a science curriculum and. I chose uh, Boston College is where I went, and I was a major in physics. And uh, I, I, I liked it. Uh, there was, uh, as, as further you go on in physics, I don't know if you know much about it, but as you get up to being like a senior in physics, uh, the bad part of it is that the physics actually becomes uh, very uh, mathematical. So a lot of your courses are on, I don't know, ad advanced differential quadrennial equations. Oh, my God. I, I mean, it's... <laughs> It's sort of, uh, I, I don't know, it's, that, that part isn't the part I like. I, I, I'm more of a hands-on type person, but uh, that is what happened. So anyway, so I, I took so many math courses because of that is that I actually graduated from BC with two degrees, one in physics and one in mathematics. Uh, so then I went to graduate school at Syracuse University uh, in physics, and I got my master's degree there. And... At that point, I was working at General Electric and had to decide whether uh, I should continue on. And uh, as I, I made this connection, other story, I, I was already pointing towards retiring <laughs> uh, because I was doing this investing and stuff. And I said, uh, there's really no point for me to get uh, any more degrees here. I'm, I'm going to be retired uh, in the short order. So I stopped at that level, basically. 
If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So when I did retire, 34, the question is, what do I do with all my time? I mean, that was, you know, 34, having all the time you wanted to. I enjoyed a lot of things. I mean, I would like playing golf, for instance, and stuff like that. But I'm a, I'm, I'm a Christian person, and I believe in uh, God and uh, his uh, uh, participation here. And so I, I believe that someday we're going to have an accounting. So someday when I'm cashing my chips in, uh, I believe that God's going to say to me, you know, what did you do with the uh, assets, time, et cetera, I gave you? Okay. My, uh, so the thought to me was, well, I could say, well, I'm a one handicap <laughs> golfer. Well, I, I didn't know if that would be what what would be expected to be a good answer. So I decided to um, start uh, spending more time on something else I was interested in. That was environmental matters. So at that time, uh, we were living in the Adirondacks. You know where the Adirondacks is? Uh, basically, yeah, very you know, very diffusely, but not very specifically. Okay. Tell listeners. Adirondacks is in upstate New York, uh, part of upstate New York. It's probably the best part of New York State in a lot of ways. Uh, it's a park. It's more than just a geographical area. It's actually a park. So it has boundaries and as it's the largest uh, zoned area in the entire world. So in other words, there's rules that apply across this park. So from driving from one side to the other is, I don't know, well over 100 miles, you know, maybe 125 something. And and same for North and South. So it's a pretty good size area. Um, So as an example, within this park, they prohibit uh, billboards. So no matter where you're driving, you're not going to see any billboards on the the side of the road. None of it, (laughs) as an example, Uh, which is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. So in this park, uh, there's a lot of lakes. For instance, I live now, I have two homes. I still have a home in the Adirondacks, but my primary home is in North Carolina, where you're talking to me now. Uh, in the whole state of North Carolina, there's about uh, 30 lakes, uh, even though there's mountains out towards Asheville, and it's a fairly good-sized state. And most, But most of the lakes in North Carolina are man-made lakes. They're, they're dammed up rivers, really, uh, some of which are because of nuclear power plants and stuff like that. Now, as comparison, uh, the mountains uh, in this Adirondack area here, in this park, there's over 3,000 lakes. Well, that's, that's one of the things that I, I'm always been a water person. I'm sitting on the water right now. Our home's on the water here in North Carolina. I've always been a water person. So being in a, an area that has so many lakes, and these are all natural. There's no dammed up lakes in the Adirondacks. These are all natural lakes. They, they're clean enough you could drink the water, literally. You wouldn't drink the water in any lake in North Carolina. I can tell you it's green. It's not drinkable. But in the Adirondacks, you can literally drink the water in almost any lake. So I was always very concerned and appreciated that part of the environment. So on the lake we lived in, one of the things I was interested in is who who is monitoring the uh, health of this lake as far as making sure external pollutions, like uh, let's say a failed septic system, as an example, isn't polluting the water here. So that was one of the things I was checked out here when I was retired, first retired. And so the more I looked into it, the Department of Health, the state of New York, all this kind of stuff, the answer was I found out pretty much was nobody. Nobody was doing this, uh, certainly as monitoring. So maybe if somebody made an official complaint, they might look into it, but nobody's going to be making a complaint that their neighbor's septic system is failing. Uh, Nobody knows enough to do that. So that was one of the things I got interested in to say, you know, how can that be? Why, Why isn't there more... Uh, proactive uh, protections of this extraordinary resource. Because if this lake gets polluted, let's say the one I was on, uh, effectively, there's almost no reason for me to be there. I'm there because it's a clean body of water that I enjoy swimming in, uh, boating in, fishing in, whatever. But if it's polluted, what, what the heck's the point? So that I got to know a variety of people. So that was sort of the beginning of my whole career doing stuff that I'm leading up to this here. And so the next big water issue that happened was in our little community there in New York, a person bought a uh, small parcel, a few acres of land, and decided that uh, they bought it because it was over an aquifer. And that's another thing. As they say about upstate New York, that area where there's a lot of water, well, there's a lot of underground water too. And so he, they were over an aquifer, and they were planning on pumping out water from this aquifer and selling it. So what they, what we understood was, is that they had to deal with Nestle 
to buy this, and this would be where Nestle would sell bottled water. Well, you might say, well, so what, blah, blah, blah. But we started looking into this as to what this guy had planned. Um, uh, eventually, he didn't, he wasn't that forthcoming, but eventually he said he was planning on building, by the way, this is a little rural community that I'm talking about living in, in the Adirondacks, that maybe is 2,000 people, you know, the whole community. Uh, Brandingham Lake is the name of the lake, but this is not in the lake, but a mile or so away, a couple of miles away. Okay. Huh. He was planning on building a, uh, a facility to for to house the trucks and the water processing. The size of this facility that he officially proposed was a million square feet. Jesus. Well, I don't know Jesus. how many you appreciate. A million square feet is bigger than most shopping centers. I mean, a million square feet is enormous. Well, I guess like the Walmart is what, like a hundred thousand square feet? Yes, the big one. That's huge. Oh, for sure. This is just to process water for Nestle. This is enormous. Again, for this rural area. Oh my God, this is just astounding. So I organized a group of people to start protesting this. Well, one of the problems was that in New York State, uh, this is what's called commercial water extraction. So in New York State, there were no rules regulating commercial water extraction. Zero. None. And that's why some people like Nestle are coming there because, hey, there's good water, number one, as compared to a lot of the rest of the company. And number two, there's no regulations to speak of. So this was one of the first political things I got involved in. So I decided to get various groups together to alert them that this was going on and to see if they'd come to some agreement to petition the state here to pass some regulations. So blah, blah, blah. Again, don't have time to go the whole thing, but over the next uh, year or two, that's what I did. I got environmental groups, let's say like the Sierra Club, people like that who who had expressed some interest in environmental issues like that. I mean, water is an environmental issue. Uh, I got them together and uh, they, uh, they in turn solicited legislators and the short answer is that we actually did get uh, legislation passed in New York State to regulate commercial water extraction for the first time. So this, is a, this is a pretty big deal for me, just a young guy. I was now, I don't know, in my late 30s, wasn't so uh, expert in the political process. I didn't have that many connections or anything, but uh, I'm, I'm just persistent about it. And uh, so... I'm leading up to answer your question, believe it or not. <laughs> Through this whole process, I got to know hundreds of people. And I, I'm, a, I'm an organized person, so I keep track of these people, let's say, on an email list and stuff like that. So I, more and more of these people I'm keeping track of. And we're corresponding on a variety of things. And at one point, somewhere along the line here, after this happened, one of these people, uh, frankly, I forgot who it was, one of these people said to me, uh, have you ever looked into wind energy, Jim? And I said, uh, well, no. Why? And they said, well, because it's, uh, I know you're interested in environmental matters and uh, it isn't what it seems to be. In fact, it's environmentally pretty bad news. So why don't you look into this? Okay, well, I respected this other person. So I said, sure. So I did start looking into that. And oh my God, the more I looked into it, the more I found out that uh, in truth, you know, I thought like most people that wind energy is a good thing. So hey, you know, really? huh. seems, seems clean what they say, free, clean, and green, stuff like this. It sounds good here, but oh my goodness, the more I looked into it and did actually some research from uh, objective sources here, it uh, it was quite clear, uh, uh, not a good thing at all. Uh, uh, let's let's get into that a bit. Tell me, tell me about some of the reasons why. Um, you know, why is it not uh, environmentally sound? Okay, well, it's more than not environmentally sound. That's part of it. Part, part of the problem with describing this to people is that this is a technical matter. Most people are not technically educated. Well, we, can, we can get technical on this podcast. I've, I've okay, done that I'm before. Just telling so. you, I'm just telling you why these things proliferate is because most people right. don't understand what's going on. And most people are easily sold about superficial uh, claims made about it, and they, they have no well, idea. So you can before ask. You, if, before you move on, I want to ask you something. Um, I've asked a bunch of people this, and I have yet to see it. I don't know if it exists out there, but you know, same thing for wind. Has anyone done a side-by-side -side comparison of a gas-powered car versus an electric car? You know, like every element that goes into it, total energy and mass balance, you know, all the stuff that is required to make both cars, then the emissions, and you know, do like a real calculus side-by-side. -side. I haven't seen it. Do you know if that exists for 
wind or solar or electric versus gas cars, for instance. Okay, well, gas car car versus uh, electric car is a different topic, but uh, yes, uh, I have seen some that have been more an analytical. So we're getting to my newsletter here, but uh, they're in my newsletter would be the the answer. Uh, but we can get back. Okay. So the question is, okay, first of all, I was saying most people don't understand uh, electricity in general. So as an example, if you ask the average person to explain to you what happens when you turn the light switch on the wall as to exactly what's going on, how the light works and all that kind of stuff, I can tell you 99.9% of people will not be able to answer that accurately. So with that understanding, how in the world can they understand the benefits or liabilities of an industrial wind facility compared to any other alternative. There's there's zero chance that they have an understanding of zero. So my perspective is the grid uh, is one of the most successful engineering accomplishments in our history. In fact, it's been labeled the top engineering accomplishment in the last hundred years. But like a lot of other things, it's the type of thing that we take for granted. We don't even think about it. We just we go and turn on the light switch and it goes on. We go to the refrigerator and it's cold. You turn on uh, your radio and it works or TV. Uh, you connect your phone and it charges up. You just assume all these things. But believe me, if all of a sudden uh, electricity stopped, uh, it wouldn't take long. I'm talking about weeks here uh, before we would revert. The United States would revert to a third world country. Everything would stop. Everything. I'm sure, yeah. So it's uh, it's astounding that this is so significant and yet so little understood and appreciated. What I would say is the appropriate thing, again, I'm looking at this from a scientist's point of view. If somebody, uh, some group of people thinks that they have a, uh, an electricity source, let's say we're called it alternative energy, that's a great thing. That's the best thing since uh, sliced bread, whatever. They should go to... Uh, legislators, let's say, who are, might might have some say over this, and make a case. And the case would be to show them three things: how this is beneficial compared to our other choices in three ways. First of all, technically, how is it technically beneficial? Number two would be economically, and number three would be environmentally. So they should make a case. So wind uh, supporters should say. Uh, wind is a benefit to the grid because it's technically superior to other alternatives. It's economically superior. It's environmentally superior. And they should be able to show that. And if and only they do that, and only after they do that, should wind energy be allowed, or any any new thing, I'm just not saying wind energy, but any new alternative be allowed to be on the grid. Uh, but that's not how it works, unfortunately. <laughs> but that's how it should work, in my view. But that's not how it works. Instead, uh, things get allowed on the grid here because of political influence, because of lobbyists who are successful and influential, things of that nature. So back into Wynn's case, the question is, would it pass those tests? And the answer is no. Every one of those three things, wind is a net liability, net liability. So for instance, technical would be things like reliability. So how reliable is wind energy? It's not reliable at all. For instance, they, they can't tell you how much wind energy a particular wind project is going to produce next Tuesday at uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They have no idea. They keep saying a lot of stuff like we're getting better at predicting this, blah, 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 blah. But <laughs> better means, you know, they had a, a 1% chance of understanding it. Now they're up to 2 But uh, they have no idea what they can predict. None. So as far as all of the other traditional things, our whole grid was set up to be a very close to uh, balance between supply and demand. You have to oversupply, and then that'll be that'll be wasteful. Well, they they count on a little. They have about a you ten have to over capacity. Yeah, over capacity. Uh, they have about ten percent uh, reserve just in case of emergencies. But yes, what they do is that they have twenty percent all of a sudden that they shut something off, and usually what they shut off, unfortunately, is our more affordable, dependable things like uh, I don't know a fossil fuel facility or something of that nature. They don't shut off wind. Well, as I said, I don't want to get too complicated here. But anyway, so as far as uh, technical aspects of wind energy, if you look at all the technical consequences of it being on the grid, it is a net liability. As far as the economics of it go, it is unequivocally a net economic liability. For instance, the the cost of wind energy, when it's properly costed, is probably four to five times the cost of our conventional electrical energy sources. Four to five times. 
Really? That much? Wow. Oh, easily. <laughs> yes. The third thing is environmentally. Well, environmentally, it's it's horrifically bad. It's uh, there's there's numerous. Uh, it's it's a wildlife uh, disadvantage. It, it kills birds, bats. Uh, it's uh, the again on my website. There's just hundreds of studies that have documented this. So this isn't me saying this here. Uh, it's adverse to humans. Uh, there's probably 50 studies that have shown that citizens nearby wind projects have uh, can have. Not all of them do, but just like not everybody who has smokes gets sick. A substantial number get uh, have serious uh, health effects. So, oh, what, what do you mean? What happens to the people that live the people that live near a wind farm? Yes. Well, I wouldn't use the term farm. See, that's another example that I I never. I'm, you're not going to hear me say that because uh, this this is a marketing term that they've injected into the vocabulary, and the whole idea Ooh. is to make this industrial project sound like it's pastoral or bucolic or something else, Ooh. and that's part of the trick. They want you to think. Farm, farm. This is a nice rural, uh, friendly thing here. Well, that's not true. This is an industrial project, so there's no farm. So, well, uh, okay. So, what what happens to people near? I mean, what do you call it? A wind what project? My wind project, wind facility. Yeah, there's a whole variety okay. of things. So, so uh, the number one thing. There's several, but the number one thing is uh, that people have adverse effects to. Uh, uh, noise. Now, the interesting thing is, this is another thing most people understand, is that when I say noise, I'm, I'm, even though there is some noise that's acoustically uh, hearable, that, that can be troublesome, but the real problem is the noise you don't hear. So that's called uh, infrasound. Uh, it's, it's sound that's uh, below the level of hearing. Well, you can say, well, how, how can you be bothered by something you don't hear? Well, believe me, uh, that, that's the interesting thing here, because infrasound is actually, sound in itself is energy waves. So you are being uh, impacted physically by these waves, whether you hear them or not, whether they're above your hearing level or they're below your hearing level. So that'd be ultrasonic or infrasonic, infrasound. But what, the, what many, many studies have shown is, is that sound below our level of hearing, infrasound, has significant uh, health, detrimental health impacts. Significant. In fact, infrasound is so powerful that uh, the U.S. Uh, military has, for several years, been working diligently to weaponize it. Diligently. What, is it, what does it do to people? Well, it incapacitates you, basically. It wouldn't kill you. So, for instance, if they let's just—I'm uh, speaking uh, theoretically here—if they had a, an infrasound gun to a crowd that they wanted to do, it, it would all the people would be incapacitated. They would—they wouldn't be able to talk. They'd be throwing up. They'd be uh, have to lay down. They would be incapacitated. Now, none, none of them would die, but you'd be incapacitated just by sound. And uh, but infrasound for somebody who lives near a project. Uh, there's been, that's what I'm saying, there's dozens and dozens of studies that have shown that uh, people have uh, really, some people have really, really serious uh, effects from it. I mean, really serious effects. And a lot of people have had to just move away. They, they, they can't sleep, for instance. Even when they're awake, they feel under tension. Uh, there's a whole variety of uh, modalities that this, this infrasound uh, produces. Wow. That's crazy. Well, it is crazy, but this is this is well documented, and the only way to uh, minimize it is to have rules, local rules that that have a uh, a sound, uh, a decibel level to that the wind project can't exceed. What kind of decibel levels, and like how far away from a wind project are, can people be affected? Okay, well, those are two different good questions. Uh, on our website, wiseenergy.org, we have several pages about. Uh, these matters. Probably the one, if anybody's interested in that, would be the, the key documents page. So in there we have hundreds, hundreds of studies, hundreds of studies that we reference in different categories, including health things, including environmental things, animal things, whatever. And uh, what we've concluded, I say we, I mean the scientific community has concluded, is that the regulation ought to be that to, to protect human health, that the sound limit should be no more than 35 dBA uh, 24-7. Now, unfortunately, most communities, they go into little communities. Well, 
95% of these communities don't even know what DBA is, quite frankly. And we come in, they come in, and uh, these technical people who are with the Wind Project are really sophisticated people. And they say, well, you know, yeah, you need to have some, some regulation here, but uh, uh, 45 DBA is good enough. Well, you know, these are, these are the people who are supposed to be being regulated telling you how to regulate them. Uh, how, how smart do you think that is? Well, they fooled most towns who are dealing with them into allowing noise levels to be two to five times higher than they ought to be. Uh, and it's at the expense of their citizens. As far as setbacks, there's two factors for, two reasons for setbacks. One would be the farther you are back, that would minimize some of the sound. But another major adverse effect of these wind projects is um, home devaluation, property devaluation, home devaluation particularly. And the studies have been done, and there's been a lot of them, have concluded that uh, you need to have like a setback of, in the neighborhood of uh, two miles uh, from a home before you can be sure that it's not going to devalue your home. And the blades must- spinning slowly causes infrasound that is damaging yeah. in people's health? Yes. And the home part is because of the visual thing here. People just don't want to live near an industrial project, basically. I mean, you know, if you had a choice to live in a pastoral uh, setting where all you saw was fields and forest, as versus one that you saw 50 industrial turbines, 600 feet tall, I mean, uh, what what do you think most people would choose? So the fact is that uh, if if 90% of the people would choose against that, that means when you come to sell your house, that your property is going to be acceptable to a much, much, much smaller uh, market, you reduce the market, and uh, price is pertinent to supply and demand. So there's been studies done of millions, millions of homes, millions, literally, near wind projects, and the unequivocal conclusion if, of them is that your home will devaluate, depending on how close it is, depending on, you know, just exactly how visible the turbines are, things in that nature. But when they're 600 to 700 feet tall, which is what they're doing now on land, uh, you can see them for a long ways away. So what if you went to a remote area that was pretty consistently windy and made a wind project there away from people? And, you know, do you think even then, just economically, it's not viable? Okay, well, you're stuck, you, you address somewhat the people part, the, but uh, you didn't invest the environmental thing. You're still going to have an adverse effect on birds, bats, and other type of uh, wildlife. Number two, you're still going to be uh, in, uh, have, having economic uh, electrical energy sources five times the cost of other sources. So how's that advantage? And number three, it's going to have other problems that's being causing the grid here because of its completely unpredictable intermittency. So no, I don't see any advantage of it there either. Oh, okay. What about uh, solar? Do you have you researched much on solar? Can we talk about that too? Yeah. Solar has uh, problems as well. Uh, on the net, it's it's a net liability as well. I would say some of the problems aren't as serious. For instance, it doesn't cause infrasound, as an example, which is a big deal. Uh, the setbacks from solar aren't as bad or aren't as much as are needed for wind projects. But there still needs to be setbacks from homes because home devaluation can occur because this is another industrial project. And uh, But there's other things that solar causes that wind doesn't. So, for an example, solar panels are made, well, it's hard, hard to say something categorically, but I'm just saying typically. We'll put it in typically. A lot of solar panels come from China. So what do you think the environmental controls or any type of controls there are over things made in China? Well, next to zero. So typically, solar panels are made with uh, some carcinogenic uh, chemicals, period, in it. And so what happens is, or can happen, certainly, depending on the variables there, is that these carcinogenic chemicals can leach out from these panels into the soil and get into things like uh, aquifers, groundwater. Did you ever see the movie uh, Dark Waters? Yeah. You know, Mark Ruffalo, I saw it a few years yes. ago. Yes. Okay. Well, that's the same type of chemicals. Those are PFASs. There. Those are... Those are the type of things. So exactly what happened there, all the industry people said there is no problem, blah, 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 blah. But the reality was they were lying because they knew very well there was a problem. And there's a very similar situation with uh, solar going on right now. And someday there's going to be a movie with Mark Ruffalo or somebody else saying, 
Why weren't we smarter about these solar panels? Because they have all these carcinogenic PFAS, Gen X, other type of things in it. Uh, why didn't we regulate them more carefully? They're going to say, well, who was to know? <laughs> That's what they're going to say. Who was the know? Well, I, I'm telling you right now, we do know. And uh, unfortunately, the EPA hasn't done enough on it. They are starting to do something on it, but they've got a hundred other things on their plate here. So it's a very similar situation, in my view, as to what that movie depicts in uh, Dark Waters. Well, okay, with with solar, um, I mean, do things off gas off the panels? You know, if someone has them in their house, is it going to make them sick, or is it? You know, like what's the other parts of the calculus there? The economics of it. And- well, well, I'm talking about industrial solar. That's a project, not not a home, but the the home doesn't make any sense either. That's why they have to have such enormous subsidies here that the taxpayer steps in here. No homeowner pays the full freight for a solar solar panels on their roof. Zero. None of them do. Uh, so that that ought to tell you itself that it doesn't matter. Or it doesn't make any difference. Yeah, so, even with subsidies, it's what like a seven year payback supposedly. Well. Without the subsidies, maybe the seven-year payback. Yes, there's no payback if you include the subsidy costs. It never pays back. So your part may pay back in that, yes. But the taxpayer's part is never paid back. Right, 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 yeah. So another another thing about wind here that most people don't understand is that there's no such thing. This is a key thing. No such thing as wind energy on the grid by itself. Wind energy has to be paired with something else here, because as I said here, the key problem is, and the key reality is, that uh, our grid is balanced every fraction of a second between supply and demand, okay? So if there's if there's a wind project, wherever, New York State, Idaho, I don't care, wherever it is, and let's say it's producing a megawatt of, uh, megawatt hour of electricity. Well, if the wind drops, and this is one of the things that's interesting from a physics point of view, the amount of uh, production, electricity production of a wind turbine is proportionate to the cube, not the square or directly, the cube of the wind speed. So in other words, very small changes in wind speed up or down mean significant changes in power output. So for instance, if the wind is 10 miles an hour and drops to five miles an hour, you might assume that the output decreases by 50%. Well, that's not so. Because it's 10 cubed, that's 10, that's a thousand, versus five cubed, which is 125. So a thousand versus 125. I said a thousand, didn't I? Thousand versus 125. So that means eight times. It, it's eight, it's one eighth the power at five miles an hour than it is at 10 miles an hour. Not oh. half. One eighth. So this is a this is continually changing because wind changes, obviously, all the time. And so something else has to be on the grid to uh, counter that, to be in sync with that, to balance that out. So every time the wind project drops, something has to instantaneously increase. Every time the the reverse happens, that has to happen too. So there's a continual uh, dance here that the two have to be married. And the only thing we have that does that uh, you can't do that with a nuclear facility or the coal facility or hydro. The only thing that does is gas. So a gas facility can uh, balance that. So it's sort of like uh, the comparison is like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Know, that's probably how, how does it balance it, by the way? The other goes the, up. Uh, okay, wait, oh, so just gas production goes up for, uh, for heat yeah. or power? There's a gas facility paired with a wind project. So when it drops by 20%, let's say, of output, uh, the gas turbine goes up by 20% to to balance it. Otherwise, we'd have an imbalance between supply and demand on the grid here, and that that would mean blackouts. Because wind is so inefficient, um, it's not even worth it to run it at all, even if it is paired with gas, I guess it seems, right? Right. (laughs) So, Is there other conditions where it's worth it to run it? No, not, not in my view. Once you understand that what actually exists on the wind or on the grid is a wind plus gas package, then everything you're talking about should be of that package. So these people are deceptive, trying to say, let's just look at wind by itself. That's a lie because it requires this augmentation source. So the two have to be paired together. So uh, when they're talking about cost, they should be talking about wind plus gas cost because we have to build and pay for the gas facility besides the wind facility. When they're talking about economics, they have to be talking about what's the cost of both of those. 
when they're talking about environmental consequences, it's the environmental consequences of both of those combined. So none of the wind people are doing that, which is a lie. It's totally deceptive because that's what in reality that exists. So radically, uh, the more wind we have, the more gas we have to have. In other words, the more fossil fuel we have to have. So the same people are saying, well, we're, we're promoting wind because we're against fossil fuel, are actually promoting a product that requires fossil fuel. How about the efficiencies of natural gas and of coal and of our traditional fossil fuels? How, how has that been changed? I'm not, I'm not a fan years? of coal per se, but, you know, there are certain places like Africa and stuff like that, probably a good thing. I'll tell you the last technical thing. Is I don't want to get too technical, but when people talk about gas, there's actually two types of gas uh, facilities, two distinct types. There's not one type, two. So briefly, one type is called a, a turbine. And the advantages of turbine are that it's low cost compared to the other type. Uh, number two, it has fast response time, very quick, quicker than the other type. But the third thing is, by comparison, is that it produces a fair amount of CO2. Okay, Low cost, fast response time, high CO2, relatively high. Now, the other type is called combined cycle gas. This is a different type of gas facility. So compared to the single cycle or turbine, it's quite a bit more expensive, two or three times more expensive. Number two, those, as far as its response time, it's compared to other things, it's fast, but it's slower than the, the single, uh, the turbine is. But as far as the CO2, it's much less CO2. It's very efficient, much less CO2. But here's the, the, hit, the hitch. When people are uh, having wind projects, the one they, the, the type of gas they, so when you say it's paired with gas, you have to say, well, which type of gas? The type of gas it's paired with is almost always a, a turbine, single cycle gas. So what that means, and the reason is because they want something with fast response time. And second of all, these utilities would like to pay less, so they buy something that's less expensive. But in the process, it's higher CO2. So what some smart people have asked is, okay, let's do a comparison. We're going to compare a wind project with its balancing gas, single cycle turbine gas facility. Look at those as a combined thing here. And then compare it to the combined cycle gas by itself. And the question is, which is lower cost? Well, the combined cycle gas is lower cost. Well, which produces lower, uh, less environmental problems? The combined cycle gas produces less environmental problems, which produces the lowest CO2. The combined cycle gas produces the lower CO2. So in other words, gas in that situation is produces less CO2 than wind does. So that's the oh. kicker. The same people who are saying we need wind to save us from climate change, blah, 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 are actually going down a route here that is producing more CO2 than if they had gone to the higher efficiency combined cycle gas. But this is why I start off by saying most people are ignorant about all these things here. They haven't a clue what they're talking about. They get up and make speeches and it sounds very good, but in reality, they have very little understanding of the whole thing. So these are the type of things I spend a lot of my time on, my website. The other thing I do for people who are interested is I have this newsletter that comes out every couple of weeks. It's free, I have over 10,000 subscribers. Just send me an email, aaprjohn at northnet.org. I can put you on that. But it's uh, the most unusual energy environmental newsletter in the world, as far as I'm, I know. Yeah, I've been reading through some of it, and there's tons and tons and tons of references and articles. So it's well-researched. There's a lot there. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm sure you haven't seen anything like that otherwise. Yeah, well, that's why I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, for a closing question or two is um, every, I mean, just it's coming from every side about climate change and we're in an emergency and we're all going to die in 10 years. And what, what are your thoughts around how it's uh, put forth in the news media and just brought up by everybody? Like, do you think there's a real emergency or what's your thought? I uh, think it's another technical matter that people are jumping into that they have very little understanding about. Very little understanding. There's four, what I would say, pillars that are supporting this, uh, this message, one is the IPCC, the part of the United Nations. Uh, all you have to do is look into the IPCC and see that this is actually a political group, despite the fact they keep trying to make it out of science. This is a political group. They are not charged with investigating the whole situation. They're charged with one thing, and that is show how climate is affected by man-made, by man. Well, that's, that's not politics, or that's not the science, I mean. 
uh, if they were really interested in researching climate change, they would say, consider all the sources that may be contributing to climate change, not just man-made, but they, they're not doing that. So that's one big problem. The second problem is computer programs. Uh, on my website there, I have uh, some very interesting analysis of why computer programs are not to be trusted for a situation like this, which is long-term away, 50 years away, and uh, hugely complex, way too complicated from what we know. Way too complicated. There's, there's dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of assumptions that we just don't know. The third thing is there's claims that 97% of scientists are in agreement here. That's totally dishonest. That's 100% false. Uh, first of all, there's never been a survey of all the scientists. There are. Uh, there are several million scientists in the world, so there's never been a survey on that. And uh, even if there were, uh, we don't decide things based on uh, popular vote anyways. Science is based on empirical results, and there's been zero empirical results proving their uh, assertions here. So bottom line is, my view is that climate change is possible. But in a legal term, it is a situation where the jury is out. In a science perspective, it's what's called a hypothesis. Fine. It's a hypothesis. It's not a proven theory. It's a hypothesis. So there's no proof of it. It's a hypothesis. And it may turn out to be true. I'm not saying it's false. I'm just saying it is not proven to be true at this point. So are you, uh, I mean, do you get attacked? Do people email you? Do they call you? Do they try to trash sure. you online? Like what happens? Oh, sure. I don't pay attention, but yes. Why not? If anybody that's uh, <laughs> not in lockstep here with the politics, I mean, what do you, what do you, how do you think people like Hitler got uh, successful? Because everybody followed along. Nobody wanted to say anything. What do you think Ooh, the story yeah. we've always heard about the emperor with no clothes? That's, that's what it's trying to tell us. You're just going to go along and mimic what everybody else says and, Sure. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Sure. Well, I uh, I'm trying to tell the truth. I don't have any financial connection here. No one's paid me anything for any of the stuff I've done for forty some years here. So I'm just explaining my position. And just like some of the studies I pointed you to, I've given numerous hundreds of citations from other sources. So check them out. But most people don't want to bother checking things out. Yeah. Well, one way to get it pushed to them is your newsletter. So. You know, in closing, because we're out of time here, can you repeat how people can find out more about your work? Yes, they can go to my website, which is wiseenergy.org. If they would like the newsletter, free, just send me an email. It's AAPR, that's Apple, Apple, Peter, Robert, John, my name, J O H N, AAPR, John, at NorthNet, N O R T H, net, N E T, dot org. Okay, well, very good. Well, John, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Hopefully it was interesting and entertaining, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.